But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Secret Antenna. This is Michelle, and I will be your host today for a solo flight over yet another anti-communist dictatorship. (laughs) When Callie and I started this podcast, we had no idea that we would spend so much time talking about the history of anti-communism. But we do that a lot here, and that's what we're going to do today. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Once back, I received these beautiful Riso print zines from a place called Crisis Editions. They were put, these were put out in 2018. Somebody got a hold of me and sent me these, and they're beautiful, and I love them. And they are titled John Stockwell, The Secret Wars of the CIA, Part 1. And we have John Stockwell, The Secret Wars of the CIA, Part 2. And I'm going to read a little bit from from that, from those today. I may just wind up at some point reading this whole speech because that's what this is. This is John Stockwell is a, is a CIA whistleblower. And these two zines together make one speech that he gave in 1986 and i maybe will just read that at some point these zines are beautiful um so but i will read a little bit from this today but one of the issues that i've had in trying to get this episode out here at secret antenna we have been trying to get the jakarta method to you for some months for quite a bit of time actually um it's a it's such a big topic and one of the things that i recently realized was if i stop to tell you what every single it's a find out. I don't even know. I'm coming across CIA operations. I've never, I've never seen those words before. Right. But if I stop at every CIA operation that's happening in Indonesia, I mean, it'll just go on forever. Right. So that's one thing that I realized we're just going to stack operations today. So when you're like, wait, what is that? Did she say what that was? No, I probably didn't. I might, I might mention one or two things, but for the most part, just accept that a lot of CIA operations are happening and they're all terrible. Just accept that. And then this will be an easier topic to cover. And maybe we'll get into some of the specific, because it's not that specific CIA operations aren't important. They are. And I'm glad they break them down the way that they do. And because the records that they do keep, eventually that'll make it easier to like have a truth commission, which is what, um, what'll have to happen eventually. Um, so let me read this from, this is part of John Stockwell's, CIA whistleblowing speech that he gave in 1986. Let me read you the little forward on the book. So this is this is what these zines are about. This is the zines. John Stockwell is in the highest ranking CIA official ever to leave the agency and go public. He ran a CIA intelligence gathering post in Vietnam 
was the task force commander of the CIA's secret war in Angola in 1975 and 1976 and was awarded the Medal of Merit before he resigned. Stockwell's book, In Search of Enemies, published by W.W. W. Norton in 1978, is an international bestseller. This is a transcript of a lecture he gave in June of 1986. So I don't know where he gave this lecture, supposedly. I don't know where he gave it. So, and I, nor have I read this in search of enemies, but I'm definitely going to, because John Stockwell, I love, I like the way he talks. I like, I like his words. So here's a little bit from him on Indonesia. He says, the Indonesian covert action of 1965 reported by Ralph McGee, who was in that area division and had documents on his desk in his custody about that operation. He said that one of the documents concluded that this was a model operation that should be copied elsewhere in the world. Not only did it eliminate the effective communist party, that's the communist party in Indonesia. It also eliminated the entire segment of the population that tended to support the communist party the ethnic Chinese, Indonesian Chinese, and the CIA's report put the number of dead at 800,000 killed. And that was one covert action. We're talking about one to three million people killed in these things. So that is John Stockwell coming clean about these death squads whistleblowing about these death squads in Indonesia in the 1960s. This process eventually becomes known as Operation Jakarta or what Bevins in the, his book is calling the Jakarta Method. So let me read. It, it shows up in Brazil later because they use what they learn, use the method that they used in Indonesia and in Jakarta. The CIA uses that later in Brazil. So here's a little fast forward from Indonesia. This is, this is how Operation Jakarta is seen later in Brazil. It says, as the Brazilian government collaborated with right-wing forces in Chile, the word, quote-unquote, Jakarta, was put to new use. In both countries, the capital of Indonesia now had the same meaning. Operation Jakarta, or the Jakarta Operation, was the name of a secret part of an extermination plan, according to the documentation compiled by Brazil's Truth Commission. Testimony gathered after the fall of the dictatorship indicates Operation Jakarta may have been part of another operation, Operation Radar specifically, which was aimed at destroying the structure of the Brazilian Communist Party. The goal of Operation Jakarta was the physical elimination of communists. It called for mass murder, just as in Indonesia. Before the Jakarta operation, the dictatorship had aimed its violence at, oper at open rebellions. Operation Jakarta was a hidden plan to, to expand state terror to Communist Party members operating openly with civil society groups in the media. The Brazilian public would not hear the words Operation Jakarta until three years later. But in Chile, the word Jakarta made a very public arrival. 
around Santiago, especially in the eastern part of the city, up in the hills where the well-to-do people lived, someone began to plaster a message on the walls. It took a few forms. Jakarta is coming, or sometimes simply Jakarta. That passage is from Vincent Bevan's book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. He is coming out with a second book. Bevins was a journalist for the LA Times and the London Financial Times. He was an American journalist in Indonesia for 13 years, and that's what the Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, is about. That's what it comes from, his experience in journalism there. It came out in 2020, and I, I think his next book is coming out this year, actually, continuing to look at these types of operations, which brings us to what's happening here with, with Cop City. Cop City, while its immediate impact is on the community directly surrounding it, that's who gets harmed first. Um, this is the plans are there to bring in military from other countries. Like, this is not just going to be about Atlanta or even the United States. There's all these ways that laws can be, well, I, I, listen, I can't even say it when it's about these folks. They can do whatever they want. But there's also these ways that you can couch phrases so that you'll be able to be doing significant trainings with, uh, you know, they're going to be training people to do torture. We know of at least one assassination so far associated with Cop City. Um, 57 shots. Um, that's a, that is sending a message and messages like that have a tendency to escalate, especially what they're trying to do is build this place where they'll be able to train death squads for all over the world. People are going to come to Cop City from all over the world, not only to give training. But to also receive training, this is not a, this is not, uh, Cop City is not localized to any town or country, or, nor is it localized to specifically, how do I want to say this? Like, you, the CIA, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. The CIA is training death squads at Cop City. I guess I don't need to. <laughs> I don't need to make any more definitive statements than than that. That's pretty definitive. Um, but this is, it it ties in. This is the Jakarta method. This is what is, and of course, death squads predate this. Don't misunderstand. But this is what the, the instance of what transpired in Indonesia ha, has been very successful and continues to inform the way um, the CIA primarily, and I never want us to forget that there's always so many agencies that we don't know, we don't even know the names of, and certainly agencies that we don't mention as much, DIA, DARPA, 
NSA, which wasn't even originally legal here in the United States, the old NSA. So there's, uh, there are many, many levels to these operations. So Jakarta, or the special capital region of Jakarta, is the capital of Indonesia. It's the largest city in Indonesia, and it is the political center of of Indonesia. It is the it is the second largest city in the world. There's 11 million people in Indonesia. Um, the largest city is Tokyo, which I think is. I think is 17 million, 19 million, something like that. There's 18, there's 8 million in New York City. So Jakarta is bigger than New York City. It's an archipelago. Isn't that a cool word? It's an archipelago, which is a collection of islands. That's what archipelago means. So Indonesia is an archipelago that spans 2 million square miles of sea. It is home to hundreds of distinct nationalities and languages. I think I read it was 700 plus languages in Indonesia alone. 2 million square miles of sea. And it's home to all these various cultures and languages. And it, the reason that, that this is the case is because Indonesia was specifically formed uh, to unify itself against imperialism and imperialist spread and imperialist rule. It specifically, in other words, got together and unified as a sovereign nation for the purpose of fighting imperialism, for the purpose of fighting anti-communist dictatorships. That's, that's, what, that's what an imperialist um, colony is. That's what imperialism is. It's anti-communist dictatorship. And communism being really from the most simple terminologies that we're going to use here, communism is any type of social structure that is organized to benefit the people who live and work in the society. That's communism. And there is a crusade, literally a crusade, against that happening because capitalists, like the person, I forget who that guy was, who was the guy when somebody said, he's some big corporatist um, politician, you know, and somebody said, well, clean water is a human right. He made this face, like, that's crazy. And he's like, I think that's a little extreme, right? I mean, like, this guy pretty, if you don't get that, like, you'll get clean water if he gives you clean water. Like, if you don't get that, you're some kind of, like, you know, you're a real, like, you're a dangerous subversive, you know, like, you're a dangerous commie. People have a right to, people have a right to clean water. You filthy communists, you're going to ruin everything. I forget who the guy was. This was recent. This was, you know, in the last couple of years. Anyway, here's something that Vincent Bevins has to say about Indonesia right at the beginning of the book. He says, Unless you are Indonesian or a specialist on the topic, most people know very little about Indonesia. That would be me before reading this book. And almost nothing about what happened in 1965-66 in the archipelago nation. Indonesia remains a huge gap in our collective general knowledge. 
Even people who do know a little bit about the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Korean War or Pol Pot or can easily rattle off some basic facts about the world's most populous country, that's China, the second most populous, India, or even numbers six and seven, Pakistan and Nigeria. Even among international journalists, few people know that Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim-majority country, let alone that in 1965 it was home to the world's largest communist party outside the Soviet Union and China. The truth of the violence of 1965-66 remained hidden for decades. The dictatorship established in its wake told the world a lie, and survivors were imprisoned or too terrified to speak out. It is only as a result of the efforts of heroic Indonesian activists and dedicated scholars around the world that we can now tell the story. Documents recently declassified in Washington have been a huge help, though some of what happened still remains shrouded, Sri. You are listening to Secret Antenna, a completely unfunded podcast that we do for free. We made a Patreon to help us buy books and equipment, and we post full-length bonus episodes on there, mostly about topics we get a little more wacky on. Access to all of our content starts at a dollar a month, and you can subscribe at patreon.com slash secret Part of why Indonesia is so obviously missing from history is it forcefully contradicts what we have been taught in our propagandized school about what the Cold War was all about. Indonesia really brings every... I mean, honestly, <clears throat> for those of you who are not Americans. Uh, we weren't really taught anything about the Cold War in school. Uh, I don't, I don't even know that they teach it in colleges most of the time, unless maybe there's a few, uh, courses that you can take fringe classes that are specialized electives on like the Cold War. Cause there's some like freak, <laughs> freak, uh, professor that's still managing to hide out like as an unpaid, basically adjunct in a broom closet. I mean, honestly, if you're not from, if you're not in the, if you're not a, an American right now, you'd be, you'd be shocked by what we, <laughs> by what goes on here. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we never heard any, we never heard anything much about the Cold War. Now, if you were a punk like me, it was in the music. So we got that from our bands, our our punk subculture uh, was also international. So we got a lot of music and uh, essays, zines, writing, uh, contemporary, what was happening in activism. You know, not all punk is activism either, but I'm far from it. Okay, just <laughs> far from, far from it, y'all. Um, but the, but it was still in the in a lot of the in a lot of the music, both American and uh, international punk music would would spoke a lot quite a bit about uh the cold war so so some of us would get it from that but we didn't we didn't get it we didn't actually really get it from schools but even our media here in the united states when it did talk about the cold war uh our understanding of it was very limited i mean it was just it was this very it was played off as this very um it was America playing, being, being, playing softball with, um, with these, 
with all these crazy people and their crazy nuclear weapons, you know, you had to like, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't fight that. They'd set off these nuclear weapons, these crazy, crazy countries with their nuclear weapons, you know, which is the United States, of course. But uh, that's how it was played off to us. It's like, well, we all have, everybody has this, you know, annihilation power. So we all have to be, everybody has to be really cool and level-headed and reasonable, which of course is Ronald Reagan. He's very reasonable. The United States is very reasonable. You know, so that's that's how the Cold War was played to us here in the United States. What the U.S. government did is they helped Indonesian military to kill approximately one million civilians. And it effectively eliminated the largest communist party outside of China and the Soviet Union. It inspired, according to Bevins, it inspired terror programs in Brazil and Chile. Both Indonesia and Brazil were anti-communist dictatorships, and this doesn't only have consequences on the international stage. Internally, when anti-communism is the ruling ideology, almost the national religion, any legitimate complaint from below can easily be dismissed as communist. Anything that would be an obvious inconvenience to the small clique of rich families that run the country can easily be categorized as dangerous revolution and cast aside. This includes any whiff of socialism or social democracy, any land reform, any regulation that would reduce monopoly power and allow for more efficient development and market competition. It includes unions and any normal demands for workers' rights. No one seriously pretended Brazil or Indonesia was a democracy, but this is not how capitalism is supposed to work either. This arrangement may be just as far from the system that economics textbooks describe as Soviet society was from the sketches of socialism provided by Karl Marx. In capitalism, feudal lords are not supposed to be running much of the country as their own personal fiefdoms. Market inefficiencies, like massive corruption, are supposed to disappear as the result of competition. There is supposed to be a give and take between the various elements in the economy. There is supposed to be space for new and innovative firms to emerge. Challenge interest and diversify national production. But in the system set up in Brazil and Indonesia, the logic of survival required people to attach themselves to a corrupt, rapacious, and wasteful apparatus at the top of society or risk falling down into the abyss themselves and become a poorly paid worker in the extraction machine. Something interesting I learned too is recently, I'm going to read this from Vincent Fabens, um, was about the word, um, the term uh, third world. So he says, um, and then there was quote unquote third world, the vast majority of the world's population. That is <laughs> the vast majority of the world's population lives in what quote unquote is the third world. 
The term was coined in the early 1950s, and originally all of its connotations were positive. When the leaders of these new nation-states took up the term, they spoke it with pride, contained a dream of a better future in which the world's downtrodden and enslaved masses would take control of their own destiny. The term was used in the sense of the third estate during the French Revolution. The revolutionary common people, who would overthrow the first and second estates of the monarchy and the clergy, third, did not mean third-rate, but something more like the third and final act. The first group of rich white countries had their crack at creating the world, as did the second, and this was the new movement, full of energy and potential, just waiting to be unleashed. For much of the planet, the third world was not just a category, it was a movement. In 1950, more than two-thirds of the world's population lived in the Third World, and with few exceptions, these peoples had lived under the control of European colonialism. Some of these countries had managed to break free of imperial rule in the 19th century. Some earned their independence when fascist forces retreated at the end of World War II. Some attempted to do so in 1945, only to be reinvaded by First World armies, and for many others, the war had changed little. They were still unfree. All of them inherited economies that were far, far poorer than those in the First World. Centuries of slavery and brutal exploitation had left them to fend for themselves and decide how they would try to forge a path to independence and prosperity. So according to Bevins on this, the, the words third world were initially something that should inspire people, that inspired people. It sounds like it was this festive kind of youthful idea of like, let us, let us take a shot and let us take a shot at organizing a society that works for everyone. Let us take a shot at doing that from our perspective and the idea that the third world had had ultimately had a pretty good perspective on what people needed and that you know makes a lot of sense so initially i don't know i like i like i i had never heard this before and i enjoyed learning this from bevins so he's also talking here, I'm going to read a little bit, just this one little paragraph here. He says, uh, no matter what they had hoped for in 1945, Ho Chi Minh and Mao were not going to be welcomed onto the world stage, but it was not so clear, on the other hand, what the men running the U.S. government would do with the growing wave of radical third world movements that were opposed to European imperialism, were not communist, but resisted forming an explicit alliance with Washington against Moscow. This was very common phenomena. So Indonesia was a mixture of communism and capitalism, or at least that was what they were, that that's what they were trying to work out, right? And other third world countries at this time were also, were also doing this mixture. That It seems obvious if you stand back from it why you would need that mixture just to be a part of the market on the world stage. You would have to have some way to facilitate capitalist input, export, imports and exports, right? That, that, seems, that seems understandable to me from just a practical, 
just a practical perspective, uh, just practical day-to-day -day issues of what you're going to need as a country, right? But then I think there's also the moral and the moral implications that come along with capitalism, the ideology that comes along with capitalism, which on the one hand, it seems like, you know, you kind of have to, you have to kind of make a, you know, you have to look like you're pretty happy about a capitalism and that you, you believe it, it is, I think you really have to believe with capitalism, you, you have to really believe that it is what produces human greatness. I think if you will, oh, well, we need the capitalism because otherwise, how do you get, how would you ever get human greatness from me, but a mere but a mere farmer, a mere meager dirt digger <laughs> like me. No, no, no. Right? We have to. We have to have. We have to have capitalism to make bank the greatness. But, but couldn't I also have a nice society <laughs> to live in? <laughs> I think that that had to be. Um, that has to be kind of the the flag that you're hanging out out there if you're going to get any attention from these um from these folks um so they were that's what they were that's what they were doing at the time but you know it's it's not really enough even kennedy when he gets to be involved here and you know or this is around the time period that he's in office and assassinated you know all of that happened really very quickly but he was certainly no communist and you know he just gave a little nod towards it's like, well, maybe we should let them self-determine, you know, which just kind of sounded like um, something to say while he got to the most pressing things on his desk in a way, you know, like, oh, let them self-determine till Tuesday when I can, I have, I'm busy till then. It almost sounds like that, but because he, he wasn't a communist at all. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, well, that maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk more about Kennedy in this episode Maybe, maybe I won't. We'll see what we'll see what happens there. When we talk about the Jakarta method, though, in and of itself, what we're talking about, once again, just to be very clear, is this particular rash of death squads that went through Indonesia during the 1960s that were put in place and trained by the United States in conjunction with the Indonesian military and how this method of de taking down communism, even in a hybrid form, has been done again and again and again all over the world since then. So a man named Frank Wisner winds up being very important here. Uh, he was, at the end of the 1940s, he worked for the OSS, which was the office that, it's the Office of Strategic Services, which predates the CIA. It turns into the CIA, essentially. And so Frank Wisner worked for them as a, as a lawyer, but of course everyone's, all of these people are business people also right so no matter what their other specialties might be but he was a lawyer so this is a little bit from he's an important character here so i'm just going to read a little bit from bevins as he talks about weisner i kind of like the way he talks about this because this is um this is the late 40s early 50s this is pre-mccarthyism in the united states and this is where these OSS, CIA, 
fresh. This is where an, an important, this is an important turning point where the CIA is embedding themselves into the, into more, uh, what do I want to say here, into more legitimate government positions. They're hobnobbing in Washington, D.C. There's, this is just a very happening time in the United States for anti communist imperialism. <laughs> um, so here's a little bit from Bevins. The CIA boys and their wives built a lively social life around Washington, D.C. More urbane and liberal than most people in the city at the time. It makes me think, just this is my aside, this makes me think of um, Gloria Steinem, what she said about working for the CIA. You know, she said, well, what's the problem? They're, I find them to be very liberal. Anyway, they were more urbane and liberal than most people in that city at the time. They would organize spirited dinner parties at their houses in Georgetown. They'd invite over CIA agents, defense officials, and influential journalists. After the meal, the women would retire to one room while the men talked politics in another, which was the style at the time. They also liked to get very drunk, just like James Bond. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they looked up to the Secret Intelligence Service, or MI6, the British agency that had accumulated so much expertise in spycraft while maintaining the British Empire for centuries. And some of them loved James Bond himself. Tracy Barnes, one of the agency's founding figures, loved the character created by Ian Fleming in 1953 and would pass out copies of the novels to his family at Thanksgiving. Paul Neitz, the man who wrote the so-called blueprint of the Cold War, described the upper-class imperial values that children soaked up at the Groton School, a private institution which was modeled on elite English schools and gave the CIA many of its key early memory, uh, mem members and memories, but members. It's fascinating, right? So they really are bringing up these little spy children. <laughs> little espionage babies. We talk about Nepo babies, but let's talk about these espionage babies. <laughs> uh, here's more from, here's more from Bevins. <sighs> That's me deep breathing to save my life. <sighs> there we go. From the beginning, the CIA had two basic divisions. On one side was the gathering of intelligence through espionage. Their job was something akin to providing a private news service for the president. On the other side was covert action, the rough stuff, the active attempts to change the world. And that was Frank Wisner's territory. Wiz. That's this guy's nickname because he's a very wealthy. I didn't tell you his whole background. It doesn't really matter. He's one of these. He's one of these. Well, one part of it does matter. They said that like Wiz, that's his nickname. That's his rich kid nickname. Rich kids have the weirdest nicknames, y'all. Um, anyway, Wiz, um, that he didn't even put on his own clothes is in here. Like he used to lie down on his bed and his black maid, he put his arms up in the air and his black maid would put his shirt on and his like pants legs and stuff like that I guess that's kind of important that's in here but Wiz um is his is, is his rich kid nickname 
And these are the people that are having these revolutions. These are these people that are having these death squad revolutions. This is somebody who didn't put on his own, didn't put on his own clothes. I mean, that's so far out there to me. That sounds, that's so fictionalized to me. But I mean, maybe it's like something, I mean, maybe that's just, it's just too, it's hard for me to imagine. Like I can't even finish that sentence right, but maybe it's like really something that is really prevalent among <laughs> wealthy people. I guess it is still, is it still really, you don't dress. It seems like, I don't know, I guess as an American, I'm so weird about my space and my privacy. And I just feel like rich people would be too. Like you wouldn't, that these days, modern rich people would have like at least one room where they're just total filthy animals and nobody even goes in there to clean it up. That's what I think rich people are like, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, back to Bevan. So Wiz started out by building a network of spies and stay behind, quote unquote, stay behind agents. We're going to talk quite a bit about stay behind agents here in a second and stay behind agents in Western Europe, whose job was to rise to action if the Soviets ever did invade. In Germany, the CIA had no problem recruiting former Nazis, including those who had run death squads, as long as they were anti-communists. Then Weisner looked for a way to penetrate Soviet territory. He recruited desperate homeless Ukrainian refugees, many of whom had fought with the Nazis, to parachute into communist territory and revolt against the Russians. None of them survived. But that didn't stop Weisner. The agency sent hundreds of Albanian agents back to their homeland. Most of all, most all were captured or killed. It almost seemed as if the Soviet-aligned government was waiting for them. And they were. Kim Philby, a British agent who worked closely alongside Weisner and the rest of the CIA, had been a Soviet mole the whole time. Almost every single one of Weisner's early operations had been compromised somehow. Weisner sent more men to Albania even after he found this out. They were caught and put on trial. Slowly but surely, Wiz and the CIA boys realized that actual Soviet territory was mostly rock solid. They were certainly failing to penetrate it. If they wanted to fight communism, and they did very badly, they had to look elsewhere. The Third World offered that opportunity. The problem these men overlooked, according to a mostly sympathetic history written by journalist Evan Thomas, was the fact that they knew almost nothing about the so-called developing world. In 1962, both the U.S. and the British government, they escalated their secret activities in Indonesia. So that's how, that's the time period that it overlaps. With John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy has things to say about it later. The Kennedys are certainly more seemingly pro-Indonesia, pro-self-determination. They certainly seem to at least publicly have something to say along the lines of like, you know, you're not supposed to bomb these sovereign nations, I guess, in one way or another. They're kind of saying that. Um, which is, you know, what, what's, what, which is what the U.S. does all the time. It's what the U.S. military does a lot. Anyway, though, that having been said, you know, the Kennedys are capitalists. They're a dynasty family, um, royalty, I think, 
other people know more about that, more about that than I do. Um, but for whatever uh, positive attributes or po things, positive things said about the Kennedys, I'm never really suggesting that if only we had the Kennedys' capitalism, things would be things would be fab. It might be better, but I don't know. I think that the Kennedys' capitalism could only have ever led to the Kennedys' assassination. All right, but I wanted to read this. By 1962, the U.S. and the British governments had escalated secret, their secret activities in Indonesia. Apparently, according to Bevins here, their full nature is still hidden to us, but they included black operations, which is the... He's got black operations in... Um, quotes in here that's kind of funny to see <laughs> that's kind of funny for me to see like black operations wink wink um but they black operations and he's all of the like weekend there's gladio is here jakarta becomes an operation itself operation ajax operation phoenix um that's just like a few of them that's just a few of them. They're all crisscrossing um, here. Gladio's a big one that's happening here. Gladio's a big conspiracy, though. We really... I shouldn't touch on it too much. Let's see. Um, so this is so during this time, the like early sixties, the British created the position of director of political warfare, quote unquote, in Singapore, and in de in December they did that in sixty four. The U.S. government approved a secret plan on March fourth, nineteen sixty five, though the funding source and the amount of money provided remain classified. Most of the secret activities were probably carried out by CIA and MI6. Given the way these organizations operated, it is almost certain that operations also included placing untrue or provocative stories in the Indonesian and international press. They wanted to goad the communists into action. So, um, so which is, you know, COINTELPRO, we've talked about what that is, what happened, you know, here in the United States. Uh, that was just one small operation, but it's something that we know to be absolutely true. So this goading, the starting infighting, starting frustrating, frustrating forces, um, just playing in the background in these different ways, putting enormous stress on situations. And again, you know, I always bring up these folks are studied and what, you know, stress situations are. And this is, you're talking mid 60s by now. They have a lot of information that's coming out of MK Ultra and the precursors to it. Uh, if you didn't listen to our MK Ultra episode, the sleep room comes first, and that's like middle class housewives in Brit in Britain that were under Ewan Cameron's quote unquote care. That's where those <laughs> that's where those quotes belong. So there's already an, an enormous amount of information about what frustrates us, what causes us wandering anxiety, causes these wandering kind of vague senses of dread. Like they know a lot about us by the us being just people uh, by the 1960s. Enough they know enough how to really cause problems without maybe even appearing to cause that many problems but that having been said they were not afraid of how they appeared in indonesia they were in fact that was part of it brutality and cruelty so one in particular operation though that that does cross there that's a big operation like i say is gladio 
which is a operation gladio is a cia cold war operation so uh, that was happening at the time it's still going on it's still very huge um but it was organized by the uh, by the western union and nato so uh <laughs> it's so nato's in on the on the gladio operation right nato um gladio specifically refers to the italian branch of nato it is the informal name of all stay behind quote unquote there's some more of those quotes for you of all stay behind operations which are armed anti-communists that are left behind after wars and maybe after some other ops or just basic occupations even you know quote-unquote peacekeeping operation so but you can leave armed peacekeepers even behind me what else are peacekeepers right behind and they continue the attacks on the left wing this is i mean stay behind operations are enormously important and gladio i mean how do you get rid of how do you get rid of a death squad that doesn't exist and that i mean it you can't really get rid of a death squad that openly exists. Like I said, these uniforms, you know, the rallies, the ceremonies, um, the the public, everything looked, these death squads look very normal, uh, you know, in terms of they look just like our society, look like just U.S. society, which they are, right? Um, but all of this, lo all of this looks very, all of this looks very normal. So you, you can't, you can't get rid of them when they're right out in the open. It's especially, it gets especially difficult when they don't exist at all. And they're really literally just still there. It's, that's very overwhelming. Um, because they're not only continuing the massacres, they are, you know, they're doing torture, torture torturing people on on all levels physically socially um you know psychologically emotionally torturing people and they're also tend to perform what now in our in the u.s culture you know when you start hearing about false flags come on now you hear me say false flag whose voice Whose voice do you hear in your head when I say false flag? Whose voice do you hear in your head? If you say anybody besides Alex Jones, you're a liar. You're a lying liar who's lying to yourself right now. <laughs> but these stay-behind operations, you actually perform a variety of false flag operations. I just learned recently that um, a false flag actually comes from people waving the white flag of surrender when actually they're going to kick your ass when you come over there <laughs> that's actually what a false flag is but it does now in modern parlance refer to a variety of just faking something like oh the people over there did it when really like the cops did it or whatever it would be a false flag too these days um but it is those are things those are things even if um even if uh we're only allowed to talk to him because we sound like clowns when we're talking about the damn the damn false flags but they're real okay the first president of indonesia is a man named sukarno president sukarno which 
is because you have so many different cultures in Indonesia. Some Indonesians have surnames and others do not. Sukarno does not. So that is his full name, President Sukarno. Um, and he was very popular for a while, particularly during when Kennedy was around. Sukarno was... Sukarno was a playboy, you know, and like openly, right? And it's, this is a funny, it's a funny reality is that the Americans, because this also, this also comes up with the Saudi Arabian, the Saudi Arabians, when we talked about uh, the royals, the Saudi, the Saudi royals, when we talked about the Bush family and the ways that, um, the, the Saudis engaged with this like quote unquote American playboy culture, because it's like, really the U S has this kind of, they have a, we have this like puritanical culture, right. And in, in this way that you don't necessarily find in other, in other countries. But I want to asterisk that because for like Sukarno in Indonesia, I mean, for Americans, here he is in these American clothes and kind of, you know, like, like, hey, 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 we got this hip, like, third world movement, you know, going on. Like, this stuff kind of was hip for a minute, right? So, to American eyes, though, you know, Sukarno's like, oh, you know, he's like, he has these mistresses and he's known for all of these, for all of these exploits with women. He's known for this, right? And so the Americans kind of clam up and they, they, we, you know, they don't like that. This is like, especially during this time period, you know, they're like, oh, you know, it's terrible or whatever. Well, the Indonesians don't think that, but they also just kind of have this acceptance that like men do this and especially like powerful men do this. So it isn't really that the Indonesians are like all a bunch of like swingers with some kind of like, you know, progressive, like Kinseyan, you know, I don't know, whatever, like sexual beliefs. There is more of like the Indonesians are like, you know, you're not telling me anything you don't know, like, or that we don't know. Like we know, we know he's we know it's anything that moves with Sukarno. Like we get that. A lot of men like that are he are here like that. They they're like that. Especially the more powerful they are, the more they do that. Like that's just how it goes. It isn't really because you know it's two different things between like sexual liberation and just like being like you know what if you think you can put his dick back in his pants, then you go do that. Sure, <laughs> like very very different things but at any rate there's a very funny you kind of had these two like presidents that were like these kind of like hip whatever uh what am i trying to say like um like beefcakes like heartthrobs or whatever right um at this period of time but the funny story that i'm trying to get to is that apparently the cia because sukarno was the elected president of this hybrid communism capitalist archipelago of islands that was Indonesia at the time, right? And he was elected and he was popular. He was popular across the islands. He was popular around the world. He was liked by those that were in the third world movement. And apparently he was also liked um, by some folks like, like, Kennedy and like, like some other 
capitalist uh, people, uh, just people in general, like Sarkarno. So the CIA decided they were going to make, and this is back in the 60s, y'all, they were going to make a sex tape of and get him they were gonna bust him out they were gonna make a sex tape but for some reason because i'm waiting in this story i'm like oh my god they set him up with like a honey trap because you know he sounds like he'd be down you know he sounds pretty ddf right so <laughs> like he's known for it. oh my god i'm sorry i just saw sue carno in a pair of like ddf hot pants hang on let me get rid of that. <laughs> So, but for some reason, they don't honeypot him. They decide they're going to make a fake video that's, like, fake him, you know? So, they're making this fake sex tape of Sukarno in the mid-60s. And, I mean, like, you could have done it in the mid-60s. But the CIA, they're just, like, it's... They're not stupid, like, cops. But I, I just have a feeling they're not like that, like... They're not creative in that way, you know? They're creative in, like, here's how we can, like, tell lies and get people to, like, do all kinds of terrible things or whatever. I think they're creative about that stuff, but, like, I just think they're not. I just think they didn't know how to make a video or how to hire somebody to make a video for whatever reason. But they wound up never releasing it because it just didn't look like him. I guess, or never threatened him with it, or they, but, okay, hang on, they did threaten him with it, but then never turned it up, after they made it, and they were like, God, this looks like shit, they're like, well, let's just threaten him with it, and so they told them, they're like, we have this sex tape of you, and Sukarno was like, oh, how wonderful, I can't wait to see it, it's wonderful, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's really funny, this man being, you know, in the mid-60s and somebody saying we have a tape of you having sex and him being like, really? You know, I mean, not that, you know, sex tapes didn't exist in the 60s, just not the way they do now, you know, right? You kind of need, um, you need, like, lighting, you need, like, lighting and, like, <laughs> all that kind of thing back then. Anyway, I think that's very funny. And he was like, oh, how delightful. You know, I can't wait to see it. Send it along, you know. And so it was this big joke. And everybody really thought it was quite funny because you weren't going to, like, maybe. I mean, the Americans were maybe going to be upset about the sex tape. But they were already upset with him just being a ladies' man, you know. Which, um, you know, the <laughs> which the rest of the world was like, yeah, yeah, we know. So anyway, I think that's a funny story about Sukarno. But Sukarno is then eventually he has some, you know, he's he's liked. He makes some moves at some point in time. Things start shifting and as the as the mood towards him starts shifting, um, you know, he makes some choices that that were maybe not the best choices to make, I guess. Kind, of, I'm not going to go over them. Uh, Bevins kind of goes over them in the book and maybe I don't know. He I don't. I would I wouldn't know if they were good or bad choices. I think Sukarno was going to kind of like, you know, he would he was going to have problems anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, he was, he was going to have problems anyway. They had cast the man they cast to play Sukarno in the, in the sex tape was like from like Baja, Mexico or something. That's what wound up being, <laughs> that's what wound up being the issue in the end. Somebody was like, do you not, 
do not get it. Do not. We can't use this. So that's, uh, that's, I remember that now. That's what happened. Sukarno is made essentially powerless before he's officially ousted. So he's still the president of Indonesia, but his power, his authority is being taken away. He's being isolated from his social life and other politicians until eventually, like, he just has no say. He's just the president in, in name only, which, of course, you know, by that time, you've lost a lot of your popularity because people are very shocked by you not doing anything, but then they also become you know, obviously fearful that you're the leader and you don't, you don't have power. So, so that's, that's where Sukarno is before he is officially ousted. It's official in 1967. Sukarno is ousted after 22 years as the elected president, the chosen president of Indonesia. Sukarno is ousted by Suharto, who replaces him, who is a CIA puppet. Suharto is a is a puppet, and that and is put in place specifically by anti-communist forces, by fascist forces that have already made Sukarno powerless, have been conducting business with the Indonesian military and to and to enact these death squad actions and they are the very people who do replace Sukarno with their own person, Suharto. So we're not going to talk more about Suharto today, um, but that does happen in time. Um, but this is also from Bevins. Indonesia did indeed become a quiet, compliant partner of the United States, which explains why so many Americans today have barely heard about the country. But at the time, things were very different. The annihilation of the world's third largest communist party, the fall of the founder of the third world movement, and the rise of a fanatically anti-communist military dictatorship violently rocked Indonesia, setting off a tsunami that reached almost every corner of the globe. In the long term, the shape of the global economy changed forever, and the scale of the anti-communist victory and ruthless efficiency of the method employed inspired extermination programs named after the Indonesian capital. So that's what we see later in Brazil where it says Jakarta is coming. So this is happening, what's going on in Indonesia is happening alongside the, uh, what, alongside what's happening in Vietnam. The, um, the United States have been occupying Vietnam for a very long time at that at that point so what here in the United States we call the Vietnam War was officially brought to an end in 1972 but I think what we also what we don't talk about in the US much is that it was um, it was an unsuccessful US war I they didn't I mean the United States didn't like end that the United States lost I think I've said that before um, on you know on secret antenna i think i've said that but that's not how it gets talked about to here and vincent bevins actually gets at that a little bit in a way that i think is 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 nice so i'm going to read it to you i'm going to read a few paragraphs from him the united states left south vietnam in the vietnam in the western world this meant that saigon fell quote unquote from the perspective of hanoi the vietnamese had only achieved 
what they should have gotten through that referendum that Washington had helped cancel back in 1956. Three million had died. The entire nation was militarized, and huge swaths of the country's lush jungles were rendered poisonous for generations because of U.S. chemical warfare. After the fall of Saigon, there was no communist-led mass murder of civilians in Vietnam. The massacres came in Cambodia. In 1970, the United States had orchestrated a coup and installed Lon Nol, a general who was opposed to who was supposed to be Cambodia's Suharto. During Lon Nol's rule, the United States continued to bomb the country indiscriminately, killing hundreds of thousands of people, mostly peasants in a futile attempt to stop Vietnamese communists from moving through the countryside. The United States dropped three times the tonnage on Cambodia that fell on Japan during World War II, atom bombs included. For the people who survived, the effect of the B-52s on those nearby was reminiscent of the Sulfatos in Guatemala quotes, so this is somebody speaking, the terror was complete, one lost control of bodily functions as the mind screamed incomprehensible orders to get out, one Vietnamese official remembered later. The disregard for life was staggering and well understood in Southeast Asia. Traumatized refugees flooded Cambodian cities. After the U.S.-backed coup that deposed him, the Ousted Prince, a book of memories tilted, titled My War with the CIA, We Refuse to Become U.S. Puppets, or Join the Anti-Communist Crusade, he wrote, that was our crime. He threw his support behind the small, shadowy, and strange group of Marxists he had repressed while in power, the Khmer Rouge, as he called them in the old colonial language, were the only ones fighting against Lon Nol and the U.S. Army, which was wiping out entire swaths of the population. In 1975, the Red Khmer took, took Nam Pham back from Lon Nol without Vietnamese assistance. They closed the borders and set up one of the most horrifying regimes of the 20th century. It would be years before anyone, even their supposed allies in Hanoi, knew what they were doing. The Khmer Rouge will fall in 1979, and it won't be until then that the world sees behind that curtain at those four or five very long, dark years in Cambodia. The United States being involved in training some of the most famous, at least in America, of villains is not... Certainly not new. Saddam Hussein was trained at the School of the Americas, uh, Qaddafi. Also, um, many of, like I say, many of our favorite villains here in the United States were, in fact, trained by United States operatives, CIA operatives in particular. And that hasn't specifically changed. In fact, we are in a new era and of a highly above ground era if you know what you're looking at here in the united states if you can see it it's happening right in front of us 
CNN's coverage of Cop City has been so apologist and out of the propaganda, right? It, it, some of it is so already set. Like, for example, CNN, when they say, um, when they say the project is largely funded by the Atlanta Police Foundation, a multi-million dollar nonprofit that supports the Atlanta Police Department. The foundation is one of at least 150 like it across the U.S. that CNN reviewed and that say they fill crucial budget gaps not dissimilar to a nonprofit supporting a library or a public school. CNN, that's, I just read that from a CNN article. They're not disputing that or having any trouble with, with anything that's getting said in that paragraph. You know, it makes it kind of, gives this attitude of like, listen, don't be silly. There's budget gaps in all these social services. Getting to the, just, I mean, for me, the idea that police are a social service, it, that overwhelms me. That, that idea overwhelms me. I can't possibly see it that way myself, but this is certainly how they, they're selling this. The police are just, just a public service, and all of our public services are lacking in funds, obviously, which is already, like, why are libraries lacking? Why are public schools lacking? Like, why, why, why? But, you know, CNN, they're neoliberal like that, you know? So, that, so they're already downselling what Cop City is, and especially, you know, and also the Atlanta Police Foundation, a multi-billion dollar nom. All these words scare me. Every word in that paragraph is terrible. And this is, this is CNN trying to talk about this training ground, this facility. They're doing, you know, they, and that's the second paragraph in the article. So they're starting us right off with this. I mean, that's so soft, right? This, the Atlanta Police Foundation, a multi-million dollar nonprofit, but it's just like, you know, supporting a public library, right? Some neoliberal comparisons there for sure, right? So, so the Atlanta Police Foundation, you can give money to, you can be whatever rich person you want, you donate to the foundation, you write all that off on your taxes, and you're not buying anything specific for the police, you didn't tell anybody, you're just filling, you're just filling budget caps, you're just doing your, you know, doing your thing for society as a rich person by, you know, giving, giving money to these foundations and anyway, right? So, that, so it's nothing, so everybody gets to kind of hide behind this, this, to me, it's so flimsy, but then you have CNN out, out here, out front like this with a paragraph like this, just this pretty outrageous, if you ask me, propaganda right out, right out here in the front about how many people are really, I mean, people take CNN very, very seriously. Uh, I think even, um, you know, even people who prefer Fox News, but I mean, they're the, those are the same those are the same. I mean, we're getting equal. We're getting equitable. They might choose different word choices, CNN and Fox. They might have some aesthetic differences. Um, but in overall, I mean, in terms of like, in terms of media outlet, they're putting out the same, you know, basic quality propaganda. That's all I have to say about that. But so CNN, uh, here they are.
doing their doing their little thing about cop city and so it says this is from the uh, this is from the foundation they say our role in atlanta is to help provide to develop new programs which can ultimately reduce crime listen to all of this nonsense oh and this article keeps mentioning over and over Ferguson, since you know ferguson missouri gets mentioned once in 19 in 2014 right but then every time they keep repeating since 2014. You're given to understand that they're speaking of Michael Brown and the Black Lives Matter movement. So since 2014, since 2014, this is the constant refrain throughout that article. It's just so racist. And it gives this whole uh, support to Cop City, this, you know, really terrifying neoliberal kind of support you know this soft softball game that they play with with fascist shit like cop city so um let me get you some good information about cop city so this is from this is from the stop cop city website which if you type that into a search engine you'll pull up stop cop city and I am going to read you I'm just gonna read you what's on the landing page of that website so <clears throat> it says no no police military base in Wilani Forest the city of Atlanta has leased 381 acres of Wilani Forest stolen Muskogee land to the Atlanta Police Foundation for a police military facility funded by corporations. So what is Cop City? Atlanta Police Foundation is trying to build the largest police training facility in the U.S. in Wilani Forest, a watershed surrounded by primarily black residents who overwhelmingly oppose the project. The plans include military-grade training facilities, a mock city to practice urban warfare, dozens of shooting ranges, and a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad. So that's everything you need to do fascist training, to do Jakarta-style operations. Just, I'm not saying that this is what Cop City falls under specifically, but in terms of a Jakarta-style operation, becoming the trainers of those who are already and or becoming personnel of authorized agencies. To get in there and, and train them would be part of uh, would be part of a Jakarta style operation. Part of the propaganda around Cop City also has to do with, well, we're only doing these things in communities where it's desired. So it's also coming from another very neoliberal term, community policing. Uh, it's coming from this this softball, another softball cannon to put out what that really means. So uh, this will include projects to do surveillance. So they're putting it out there as, oh, only in, you know, neighborhoods who want, 
who want this surveillance. So this is, I'm getting this again from the Stop Cop City website. It says the Atlanta Police Foundation piloted further surveillance innovations at the expense of black Atlanteans. As some claim, political unrest and public protests compounded the police department's need for a force multiplier. These controversial surveillance pilots contribute to over-policing and raise civil liberties concerns. Um, read Color of Changes full report on police foundations. So the, this is still from the Cop, Stop Cop City website, which is where you should go to find all of this. So this is, but again, this will be put out there. It's like, oh, it's only for these communities, you know, who want these things and um, there's lots of ways to make a community want something. There's uh, a lot of ways to determine if a community wants something. It's honestly so vague. You have to read into the words to really realize that you're not reading anything you're not reading anything that's a no <laughs> that's a no information sentence these surveillance cameras these surveillance plots sometimes they're not just cameras you know they're personnel also um the surveillance will only be put in places where people want that so I'll leave it to your discretion as to whether or not the Atlanta Police Foundation or the Atlanta Police Department should be in charge of deciding what people want. And that's now we must 